we thank you for uh, this time that we're able to come and to study your word and to look at the message that you have for us. Father, I pray that these things are not just my thoughts or the, uh, my opinions, but my understanding of Scripture. Um, through study and the illumination of, of Scripture through the Spirit, I pray that I will be able to make this clear. Be with my thoughts, be with my words. Help me to get out of the way and let this message come from you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. What would you do if you won the lottery? Now, when I was working at Home Depot um, for the six years that I worked there in Ankeny, I, had, I heard several times from people in the break room after looking at the winning numbers or seeing if anybody had won the night before, people would say, oh, if I won, I wouldn't be at work the next day. Or, what? Nobody won yet? I better go get some tickets tonight. Or if they're having a really good day at work, they'd say, oh, I better go get some lotto tickets before I head home. Well, some of these things kind of struck me. And one evening at home, um, after we had seen the commercial for the Powerball or the Mega Millions again, I told Mariah about that. And I said, you know, I would go to work the next day. Why would I skip work? And I wouldn't take the lump sum. I would take the annuity. I don't know if you know this. I had to do a little bit of looking, but they, they have the option if you win, you can take a single cash payment that is less than the jackpot, but it's a one-time payment of the very, very large sum of money. Or you take the whole thing Start with a very small money, a dollar amount, and over 29 years, the whole jackpot is paid off as they increase the payment. So I said, if I were to do this, I wouldn't take the lump sum. I would take the annuity. So what would I do if I won the lottery? Well, I would get a financial planner. I would keep going to work. <laughs> I would pay off school loans and other debt give a portion to church and missions work, create school funds for the kids, and the rest of it, I don't know what I would do with. I can't imagine, I can't wrap my head around $90 million. Now, I don't play the lottery. You can ask me later about the one time I accidentally had to buy 18 Powerball tickets when I was 19 or 20. Now, people play the lotto, and no matter what they say, for one reason. They want to be rich. Being rich, being wealthy, isn't a problem. It isn't a sin. And as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, it's a matter of the love of money. But in these verses that we're going to look at today, we're going to see Paul giving instructions about those who, about those believers who were wealthy and how they should view things and what their attitude should be. So let's look at our passage, 1 Timothy 6, 
beginning in verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, in this passage, we see that God wants us to live a generous life. Why? Well, we see three reasons. First, in verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Our first reason here is to glorify God, to glorify God. Paul begins by telling Timothy that he is to issue a command to those believers who are wealthy. And how do we know that this is talking about monetary wealth? Well, the phrase, who are rich in this present age, tell us a couple of things. One is that there were in the church of Ephesus at that time some believers who were wealthy. Possibly, and more than likely as, as an element of, the, of an example of their wealth, they were probably slaveholders. And at the beginning of the chapter, Paul addressed how slaves should view, have a worldview of through Christian life. So it's possible now that we're, we're, he addressed slaves, now we're addressing those who were probably owning slaves. But that's just one element of their wealth. The word rich means rich or wealthy. And then the phrase in this present age is referring to this age, this world, this era, this time that they're living in. So we understand this to indicate people living with a large, with large resources in this life, with physical resources, monetary resources. When Paul doesn't or doesn't and or doesn't tell Timothy to condemn those who are rich, who are wealthy. Being rich isn't sinful. Paul's concern, though, is that being rich can create problems for the believer. Now he doesn't really touch on greed here because he's already dealt with that in a previous section first thing that we see is that Paul wants Timothy to warn these wealthy believers about pride. A more literal, a literal translation, translation excuse me, here might read, not to be high-minded. This is the only New Testament use of this verb, and there is a possibility of a version of it in Romans 11. But the idea here is not just pride, but in arrogance against others. Essentially, viewing others who aren't wealthy disdainfully or unworthy. In other words, just because you're rich, you don't get to be a snob. 
Secondly, Paul says that these individuals should put their, shouldn't put their trust in uncertain riches. Now, the word riches here is the same basic word as we talk, just talked about. So it's talking about monetary, physical uh, riches, wealth. Now, the word that we have here in the New King James as uh, trust would better be translated as hope. And we see this in newer translations such as the uh, ESV and the New American Standard. Now, the word translated as uncertain is also the only one you hear used in the New Testament. There's a number in these three verses of words or verbs that are used right here and only right here. So this is another one that is only used in this passage in the New Testament. This term comes from a word that means clear or evident, but this word has a modifier on it creating a negative meaning. So it's not clear, it's not evident, it's uncertain, it's unstable. The point is, the wealthy tend to place their hope on riches that are unstable. They have a wrong attitude towards their wealth and make wealth their idol, their God. Now, an old article from the Wall Street Journal reads, uh, reads this. Michael Donahue, founder of the Interworld Corporation in New York City, was elated when his company's share, company's share price skyrocketed in a public stock offering in August 1999, earning him $448 million. So he splurged big time. He bought a $9.6 million second home in Palm Beach, spent $100,000 to help sponsor his polo team in Florida, and dropped a bundle renting a private jet so that he could whisk off to Palm Beach on weekend jaunts with his wife. It was a lifestyle thing, he says. Today, Donahue is a member of another club. Call it the 90% Club. A club of executives whose company's stock prices have fallen that much or more from their peak. The value of Donahue's interworld stock has plunged to, plunged to $12.6 million. The share price falling 96.8% to $2.94 from the peak of 93.50 on December 31, 1999. Donahue was asked to repay part of a $14 million loan he took out with his interworld stock as collateral. He had to put his Palm Beach house on the market for more than $13 million. Going up was easy, Donahue says, but when, it's starting to, when it starts going down, no one wants to talk to you. It's been the most challenging personal experience of my career. That article was from 2000. Talk about unstable, uncertain riches. In four months time, he lost every, all that money that he just made. Six months time. Now, the reminder in the last part of this verse is that God is the one who gives everything. 
Paul encourages the wealthy to place their hope in God. God, the unchanging one, is the only real basis for hope. Not only that, but God is the one who gives all things richly, same word used in a different form, gives richly to people to live a full life and to enjoy life. So we need to remember that no matter how much we have or don't have, what we do have is from God. God is the one who provides, and God's blessings are always given richly for our enjoyment. Homer Kent says this, God's blessings are not to be shunned, but used as God intended. And when this is done, the user receives a godly satisfaction. How foolish to transfer trust from God to riches when God is the one who bestowed the riches. Now, once we remember God as our benefactor for everything we have, we should then turn to glorify God, to worship God by offering true gratitude and thanksgiving for who he is and what he has done. Now, having seen the first reason of glorifying God in verse 17, let's look now at verse 18 for our second reason. Continuing the sentence, let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Here we see the the reason to imitate God, to imitate God. Paul now gives positive virtues that the wealthy should practice. These are seen as two sets of two. Uh, uh, these, the first item, these are seen as two sets of two, sorry. The first item is that these wealthy individuals should do good. This refers to their actions and their behavior. Paul wants them to serve by doing good. The second item is synonymous with the first and more or less explains what Paul is referring to. He says, be rich in good works. One author knows that these, that these points are describing each other as observable outworkings of faith. They are not just to be wealthy or rich by the world's standards, but they are to amass spiritual wealth as they perform multiple attractive and worthwhile works, good works. These works would be easier for them to do because of their physical and material wealth. Now, the second set of virtues here are also synonymous with each other. In fact, their meanings are very, very similar. They're almost identical. These are ready to give and willing to share. Um, here, here they are separated by a comma and, and create two different things. Other translations make it two, sta- two items in one longer statement. Now, the, the term ready to give... The idea here is a personal attribute one should have. This is sometimes translated generous. 
So generosity should be the personal attribute of this person doing good. While willing to share may have, that, may have the idea that being generous is sharing with others. This, this expression comes from a word whose root is translated fellowship. So there may be an indication of concern first for fellow believers who may be in need. Now, we don't want to misunderstand this passage of doing good works just to do good works. This isn't about social justice or doing anything of that. This is about a heart issue within the individual believer. And specifically in this context, wealthy believers. But you know, material wealth comes in many forms. Although we often only think about it in a monetary sense. During my sophomore year at college, the school received a fairly large monetary donation from the estate of a Christian gentleman who had recently passed away. He was the longtime member of a sister church in Washington, Iowa, Prairie Flower Baptist Church. This gift established an in-house scholarship for students at faith. Now, this was a big deal that year. Other than the establishment of the scholarship, the school decided to honor these saints by renaming a building and updating that building's main entrance, foyer, uh, and doing a little bit of other updates. This building, if you are a faith alum, has been formerly and lovingly been called the multi by generations of students. This building was renamed Benson Hall. This building functions primarily as the dining hall with a few classrooms. The multi-purpose use has, has decreased over its years, from being one of the first buildings on the Ankeny campus, housing the basketball and volleyball court, housing chapel and classrooms and dining hall, to now primarily dining and a class, some classrooms on the side. For a while, even housed the primary seminary classrooms, and they had to deal with the college kids going in and out of some of those rooms, too. But this year, when they would receive this and they were updating this, the foyer, the main entrance, was updated with some nicer furniture, a fresh coat of paint. The main room was given a fresh coat of paint and updated. Broken tiles were replaced. And a portrait and plaque honoring the Bensons was hung prominently in a high-traffic location. And David, on quick glance walking past it, it almost looks like there's some Jensen in there. Um, now, this couple was never very rich monetarily during their life. But like many people in the Midwest, especially in that area of Iowa, and here in Minnesota, they were farmers. They were rich in land. And they decided to give from that wealth when they were able, as a legacy gift to a, to a school devoted to training men and women for the ministry. 
So you may be sitting here thinking, I don't have $448 million to give. You have resources of your own. Maybe you're a farmer with land. Maybe that's something you can do in future planning. There are things you can do and think about. Now this verse continues, verse 18 continues the sentence that was uh, of the thought that began in, in verse 17. Now in verse 17 we see the negative. Don't be like this. Don't be haughty. Don't trust in these things. Trust God. Here in verse 18, Paul reminds with positive that they should, how they should behave and gives positive instructions. They'd be doing good with the resources you have. Be generous. Be willing to share with the resources that you have. This verse shows we This verse shows us how we are to live in service to God by serving others, by cultivating a generous spirit and actually giving and sharing what we have with others. Living for self is the wrong attitude for the Christian. We are to remember that God is the one who gives us everything, and we don't actually own anything. And then to imitate God and give. One author explains, God desires that we spend ourselves in doing good, helping others, benefiting those around us. It is a tendency of the wealthy to think that others exist for their benefit, to do their bidding. In God's eyes, it is just the opposite. Those who have been richly blessed must give abundantly. Once again, God desires that we imitate him, just as he richly provides us everything for our enjoyment, just as his mercy and love are without limit, so his people are to live with the same extravagance. God is our great example of giving and generosity. Not only does he sustain us with everything we need for life, but most importantly, through his love, Christ came and died on the cross that we may have salvation from our sins. Let's look at our last reason from verse 19. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. The reason we see here is to live for eternity, to live for eternity. This verse, which finishes the sentence that was begun in verse 17, opens with a mixed metaphor. The word translated storing up means store up, lay up, treasure up. This is the only place in the New Testament, again, where this specific word is used and has the idea of storing valuables away for future use. This word connects back to verse 18's instruction of generosity and willingness to share. Their generosity will be for them a practical example of faith. A couple of sources even call it part of their working out of their salvation. 
which is a reference to Philippians 2.12. The wealthy, understanding that God has given them what they have, should be generous, and this allows them to store up treasure. Now, this word comes from, the, from a word meaning treasure or treasury. So this idea of treasure being stored, is, stored up is inherent in the word. And many other Bible versions make that clear by adding the word treasure into their translation. The next part of the verse adds the confusion of the metaphor, uh, adds confusion to the metaphor with, with the phrase, a good foundation for the time to come. The wealthy storing up treasure as a foundation. That's the metaphor that's kind of, that's why we're mixing metaphors here. So the wealthy doing good, doing good works of beneficence through their generosity or storing treasures as a good foundation for the future. This phrase seems to be echoing Jesus's teaching in Matthew 6, 19 and 20. There, Jesus says not to lay up treasure in heaven, or excuse me, not to lay up treasure on earth, but in heaven. By doing this, they can lay hold of or take hold of life that is truly life. Now, the New King James and King James read, lay hold on eternal life. However, the evidence of the manuscripts show that the adverb truly or indeed is used rather than the adjective eternal. So while the idea of believers, while the idea of the believer's future with God is indicated in the verse with the phrase the time to come, the expression of that which is truly life or life indeed should be understood as referring back to verse 17 to enforce the fact that this life is not all there is, especially for the believer. We also see a link back to the found, to foundation, uh, between foundation and uncertain riches. The treasures they store up in heaven is seen as a good foundation, a firm, solid foundation, not uncertain or unstable like the riches of this life that moth and rust can destroy. However, we need to keep in mind first that Paul is not indicating that wealthy individuals are able to earn their way into heaven. This section indicates that Paul is assuming these wealthy people he is addressing that he wants Timothy to address are already believers. And second, the storing up of treasure as a good foundation is the result of, not the reason, the result of the riches of good works and generosity. We don't, the idea is wealthy believers should not be doing good works so they get to store up riches in heaven. They do good works, generous works, 
with their wealth because that's what they're going to do. That's what they want to do because of that generous heart and spirit. The byproduct is that they're creating treasures in heaven as a good foundation. It's not the reason, it's the result. This verse serves as the reminder that when wealthy believers or any believer give from real generosity, they are more concerned with serving God with the resources he has given them. They find their real enjoyment and hope in God and not in temporary riches. No matter what we do in this life, we can't earn our salvation. We can't earn credit with God. Our only credit with God is Christ when we accept him as our savior and repent of our sins. Christians should remember that as we cultivate this heart, this spirit of generosity, we express our faith in a tangible way. But we are also living for eternity because we know that we have eternity with our greatest treasure, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this passage shows us that God wants us to live a generous life with three reasons. One, that we should glorify God for what we have and remember that our trust should be in him, not in wealth. Number two, that we should imitate God who has given us everything by having a generous heart and willingness to share in service for Christ. Number three, that we live for eternity, which we know is secure with God. Now, I'll close with reading lyrics to a uh, more recent hymn that was written called My Worth is Not in What I Own. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. As summer flowers we fade and die, fame, youth, and beauty hurry by, but life eternal calls to us at the cross. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. The refrain reads, I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the reminder that we have in this passage. The reminder of generosity. The reminder that you are the one who has given us our wealth, our resources, our life. 
and that our only true enjoyment and satisfaction in these things is as we as believers use these resources in our life in service to you, the way that you've intended us to use them. Help us to cultivate a heart of generosity within each of ourselves. Help us that our parents to instill this heart of generosity, be example of this to our kids. Help them to realize, help us to realize, it's not just about doing good, to do good, to be seen. But it's living a life of sacrificial service because of who you are and that our lives belong to you. We thank you and praise you. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.